What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with Marcus Aurelius Anderson While training to deploy with the United States Army Marcus suffered a serious spinal injury During the ensuing surgery he died on the operating table twice Subsequently, he was left paralyzed from the neck down. Unsure of his future, Marcus went into a deep depression. In his darkest hour, he had a personal epiphany that would force him to see his injury as a learning opportunity. Through this gift of adversity, Marcus was able to overcome paralysis and walk again. His message is that adversity is a gift that demands our greatest efforts to rise above our current obstacles and to become better citizens and leaders. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. Marcus, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm phenomenal. How are you, my friend? I'm doing awesome. Now, we were talking in the pre-show about how we're so excited for this one. So I'm looking forward to having a lot of fun going down this journey with you. So before we get into your backstory, everything you're known for, how do you start your day? Um, It depends on what I have going for the day. Um, There's some mornings where I'll get up and I'll actually be able to get to work before I can start either teaching martial arts or doing my own training. But on the other days, I'll get up early. I'll spend some kind of quiet time um, sort of meditating then I'll do my own training, whether it be uh, high-intensity cardio or maybe some kettlebells, and then I'll try to attack the day from there. I do it in a fasted state. That gives me more clarity for the most part. So, You mentioned the fasted state. When is your last meal, usually the night before, and then how long do you wait until consuming your first meal of the day? What I've, in the military, it became sort of a necessity because if you have PT at 06 in the morning, Unless you get up at you know zero five and have some complex carbohydrates and let them settle, you're going to have a hard time when you have to do that twenty mile you know ruck or whatever you have in tr- in mind. So that was kind of how it came about. I'll have dinner. I'll have a you know a, a good hearty dinner. It helps me sleep as well. And then I'll usually if dinner is at say eight o'clock, I usually won't eat lunch until you know noon or one o'clock. So that gives me enough time to get in, get my stuff done, get my workout done get plenty of water afterwards. And then right around that time is when I start getting hungry and I try to um, replenish the the glycogen as much as I need, depending on what I activity I had prior to that. Awesome. No, you mentioned the martial arts and we'll get into that a little bit more. But for my listeners, I know many of them aren't going to be familiar with your story. Take me to your 40th birthday. <laughs> uh, my 40th birthday. The 40th birthday for a lot of people, like I say in my TED Talk, is usually sort of this milestone where they look back on their lives and they're married and they have all these accomplishments. And for me, it was uh, almost the antithesis. I woke up broke, divorced, paralyzed, and bedridden, um, wondering if I'd ever be able to use my hands or or walk again. I was uh, in a bed after I'd been uh, been paralyzed, so it was pretty intense. I feel like every single time I hear you say that, it just kind of takes my breath away. And I mean, it's it's so surreal to hear that, but I'm I'm trying to get my listeners to understand your story. So take us back just prior to the spinal injury. How did it happen? What were you doing that it did occur? Okay. I was, I joined the military at the, at 38 years old, they had to sign a waiver to get me in because 35 at that point was the, the age limit, but I was in great physical shape. They gave me a PT test. I maxed that out. Uh, they gave me an ASVAB test and I, my scores were off the charts. So they were like, okay, listen, you know, we'll talk to you because you, you're sort of a natural leader. You're in great shape. You're intelligent. What do you want to do? And the infantry and, you know, 
I would love to have gone to Ranger Battalion or Special Forces and all those things, and that was where I was on, on the path to. But what had happened was in the military in upstate New York at uh, 10th Mountain is where I was stationed, and we were preparing to deploy. Uh, our deployment was, was looming. They kept pushing it back a little bit. So preparing to deploy, you always have pretty intense training, and they took it up a notch as we were approaching. And there was no specific method of onset, but I would always feel this is in, in the winter up there, about 30 miles south of the Canadian border. So when we would go for runs or go for ruck marches, my feet would get really cold. But I was like, well, that's just because it's cold outside. We would try to do pull-ups on PT bars outside. And I was like, well, it's just because of the, uh, the ice and the snow that I'm having a hard time gripping it. But the week that it, everything kind of came to fruition was an intense week of training. And then as the week wore on after a 10-mile ruck march with, with half of my body weight on my back and trying to go as quickly as I could, I was having a hard time walking. I was having a hard time feeling things. And then by that weekend, I told myself, well, I'll just get up early and you know hit some really heavy squats and deadlifts because my legs feel kind of weak and my hands feel really weak. And that next morning, I woke up and I tried to roll out of bed. And I sort of rolled my neck to, to my left to get out of my bunk, but the rest of my body would not respond. And I, I sort of chuckled to myself. I thought, man, I must be really sore for my body not to work. And I, I tried it again and again. And that's when, um, man, it's, it's the worst feeling. If you've ever had a dream where you feel paralyzed and you can't move, it was my worst nightmare realized essentially is what happened. Yeah. You mentioned the dream and playing sports, I never suffered an injury like that where I couldn't move a limb, but that's only happened in a dream and I can only imagine. So take us to that exact moment. You finally realize that you can't move certain limbs, certain extremities. I mean, what do you even do first? Do you start screaming? What is that like? <laughs> um, luckily, I had somebody that was going to be knocking on my door for an AAR, for an after action report anyway, and I was late for that. So they were beating on my door and that's exactly what happened. I'm just yelling in there. They're like, what do you mean you can't move? I'm like, I, I can't move. I, I cannot, I can't move. And they're like, you know, you better not, better not be messing around. And uh, sure enough, they, they come in, they get me. And that's when they realize that, yeah, I can't move. And that's when I start trying to wrap my head around it because I kept thinking that it was just something that was temporary or maybe it would get better, but uh, clearly it did not. So that's when I had to really kind of face the reality and start trying to, because uh, you go through all the, the, you know, the classic steps of, you know, of grief, you're in denial, you're, you're in this bargaining state. It's like, well, maybe if I give myself some more time to recover or, and then of course it went into anger and all the other natural steps. Yeah. Talk to us about those ensuing steps there. I mean, obviously you must've met with doctors, surgeons, and then ended up being on the table actually. Absolutely. They, once they realized what was really going on because they, they sent me to the triage there and then they really weren't sure because you know, in their mind, it's like either there is this really, really, you know, red flag medical emergency going on or I'm faking it. And uh, they they eventually made the right decision and they shipped me down to Syracuse. Once they got me down there, as soon as I was, you know, on the gurney there, it looked like just like everything you see on an ER episode where they're running. They have a whole team of people that are, you know, running in step with us as we try to get to the MRI machine, cardiologist, neurologist, all these people shining lights on my eyes and poking and prodding on me. Once they get me in there, the MRI, they tell me not to move, which is clearly not an issue at this juncture. <laughs> um, once they get that, they get that picture shot, they take a look at it and a disc in my neck at a C5 actually had ruptured. And th there's a, uh, there's a lot of people that will have bulging discs or ruptured discs, but my disc was ruptured to the point where it basically had exploded from all the compression, from all of the training and you know, basic training and military training from infantry school and advanced individual training and all that stuff. So once that went, it pressed so hard into my spinal cord that it compressed all of the spine to where there was no cerebral spinal fluid that could actually travel down from C5 below that. So once that happens, it's impossible for your appendages to really move and articulate. So that's when they realized they were going to have to operate on me. Uh, again, I wasn't sure what was going on because I, I was just scared to death. And after they got the MRI, they said, okay, well, now we're going to prep you for, we're going to prep you. And uh, I was like, prep me for what exactly? And they said, well, we've got to operate on you. So I went from waking up, not sure what was going on and paralyzed 
to being put under the knife. Uh, they wheeled me down to the operating area. And when you see about a dozen people ready just for you, that's kind of crazy too, because I was like, man, how bad off am I if I need a dozen people down here to operate on me? So, yeah, I mean, that's what that's obviously you knew something was wrong and you go in for the MRI, <laughs> I guess, not knowing what to expect. And then all of a sudden you're told that you're going in for surgery. I mean, what is that like? Are you just terrified or is it happening too quick where you can't even really realize and comprehend what's happening? That's, that's what it was. I mean, there was, uh, cause I'm still, you know, two hours behind, I'm still trying to catch up with what's going on. And then they, and they were, you know, of course there was as encouraging as, as encouraging as they can be because they're saying, listen, you know, this person, this anesthesiologist, this is the backup for the anesthesiologist if something happens to you, or this is a backup for this nurse. So it all made sense. It was all, you know, dovetail. But at the same time, I was very concerned. I was very worried. And I even asked them, I said, is there any way that we can avoid this? And they were like, listen, you know, we know that you're concerned. We know that you're scared <clears throat> and that's fine, but we're going to take as, you know, great care of you. I was lucky enough to have, you know, a, a really great team there. And then once they, they got me under, you know, and again, I don't have any choice at this point. So they put the, uh, the mask on me and I started counting down from a hundred and, and so it went. But reach about 98, 97 and <laughs> then just, you're, you're out I, there. I got, yeah, I got 97 and that's all I remember <laughs> after that. So. Are, are you comfortable talking about the actual surgery? Uh, yes, yes. The, uh, the, the surgery itself, um, I, I find out after the fact, uh, I remember counting down and then I remember it being, uh, you know, very cold and very dark and it felt like I was in that state, that place for a long time. And then all of a sudden I'm in the ICU and they've got me in a, a neck brace and, uh, my throat is, you know, as raw as a blue steak. And I'm just like, man, I, I, I'm trying to talk and of course I still can't move and my neck is, is braced up. So when the nurses explains to me, she says, Hey, listen, you know, don't try to talk. I'm sure your throat is sore. And, uh, she said, just try to relax and try to get some sleep. So, um, then I find out, you know, I, I can't move. So the surgeon comes in and he sits right in my line of vision down at the foot of the bed. And he kind of looks at me and he's like, Hey, how you doing, Mr. Anderson? It's great to have you back among the land of the living. And I kind of, I guess I kind of furrow and I try to talk. And he's like, don't talk. I know your throat is sore. I, the reason why they know my throat is sore is because they had jammed so many tubes down my throat trying to, what, as he told me later, he said, listen, you know, we lost you for a minute. You kind of had us nervous and he kind of chuckled. I was like, what do you mean you lost me? Like, you know, where am I going? I'm the one that's supposed to be, you know, worried. You're, why are you guys worried? He's like, well, you know, you, you died and you lived to tell the tale. He's like, yeah, it actually happened a couple of times. And, uh, so that's what all the tubes were for. They were trying to jam those down my throat to try to, you know, bring me back and bring me back from where I was. So it was, that was a, again, in the last 72 hours, I've had a lot of new, of new information to, to try to digest. So, um, yeah, I mean, what that was the operation when the doctor says, welcome back to the land of the living. I mean, does that even resonate at the time? Or are you thinking like, what is this guy's talking about? I, I wasn't sure because I, I kept trying to be cognizant of my situation. I kept thinking, you know, I know I'm on a lot of pain medications still. I know there's a lot of going on, but that was the the thing that he said that I kind of, that resonated with me. And so everything else that he was saying after that, I was lis listening to it and it was very, you know, encouraging and it was very affirming, but I really couldn't get anything beyond that. And, you know, I guess he could maybe see that I wasn't really getting as much of what he was saying. So he's, he kind of, you know, told me, he's like, listen, why don't you just get some rest? I'll come back and talk to you, you know, later on, blah, 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 blah. And, and that was the last thing I remember before I kind of fell back asleep again. So yeah, it, it, again, at this point, it's like, is this a dream? Is, is all of this a dream? Am I, was I even paralyzed? Was all this stuff just like a very, you know, crazy vivid dream and I'm going to wake up in my bunk and have somebody beating on my door because I should be giving them a, you know, a report <laughs> or something at this point. So <laughs> It's yeah, it was very surreal to say the least. So no out of body experiences during the time on the table. N not for me. I've uh, and and I I want to say this. I I respect everybody who's had those experiences. I I know that these things are all individual and it's all unique to them. And it would be great if I could could tell you some some story like that. But you know, all I can tell you is in candor what I've experienced. I've 
as you can imagine, after this, I've experienced a lot. I've, I've read a lot about that and tried to do as much research as I can about those things. And I've seen some people that say, hey, it's, it's this chemical that releases. After we pass away or after we hit that point, you know, our body has a huge hormonal cascade of things that, that are initiated. But, you know, that's not what I experienced. But I, I've actually talked to many other people who have had such experiences where they've seen, you know, visions or angels or, or God or gods or things of that nature. And, uh, you know, that's very specific to them. But for, for me, I did not. I did not. Not that I can, I didn't leave my body. I wasn't looking at myself above from like a superior angle or anything of that nature. I just remember it being cold and dark and then um, waking up in the ICU confused. So I feel like your verbiage there, cold and dark, just kind of sums up for the listeners here about what type of place you were in at this time. You want to talk more about that place once surgery is done and everything kind of finally comes to realization what's actually happening? Yeah, it. In the ICU again, I they left me there for a week to kind of recover, and I'm still asking a lot of questions. Once I can actually talk, hey, when am I going to be able to use my hands again? Hey, I can't feel anything. Hey, this isn't working. Hey, what's going on? And you know, I, I look back in hindsight, and the people in the ICU—that's not their job. Their job isn't to tell me, you know, this is the game plan of when we're going to try to get you rehabilitated and try to do different things. But I also realize after that that. They don't want to be the bearer of, of bad news. They don't want to say, hey, listen, you know, if you don't walk in the next two days, you're never going to walk again, which I find out you know, later that that is exactly what it is. Once the pressure is taken off your spinal cord like that, you, they take the disc off and they put all that metal in my neck. Once that's happened, basically, if the spine is going to recover, it's going to recover. And if it doesn't, then you have severe spinal injury, a severe spinal damage to that neurological compromise. Once that's happened, then you know, it's probably not going to happen. And that's when it was very hard for me to really wrap my head around that. I, I went back and they put me back at my, my base and I wasn't able to move still. And I kept asking people and in the military, you're very compartmentalized. So it's really impossible to know what is going on outside of that. So they were just like, well, you know, let's just go ahead and see how you do and try to recover as best you can. And once things, once it was obvious that things weren't going to happen, that's when I started getting, as you can imagine, very angry. Um, not even angry at other people. I was, uh, I was angry at myself because I, I realized, unfortunately, at that point, almost too late, that you have to go after what you want. You have to attack what you want. You have to go after it with commitment and purpose. Because if you do not, and you just think. Oh, I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, yeah, I'll do this, but I'm gonna go ahead and do this other thing that is not nearly as important, but is more of a distraction than anything. And I realized it all kind of came together right then that I had been doing that with, with my life, with my intent, with my purpose. And I was sort of going through, I was doing what everybody else is doing, Sean. I was uh, allowing myself to compromise in areas where I knew that I shouldn't, but I was too afraid to really ask the, the honest question of what I wanted, what I thought was important, what was purposeful for me, and what I should be doing with my life. What's it like talking about this now? Oh, it's, um, it is surreal. It feels almost like I'm talking in third person, but at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to use my experience as a, almost a vicarious, you know, cautionary tale for other people. It's, it's so easy to talk about, you know, being strong and adversity and, quoting people, but it's another thing entirely when it's facing you right, you know, they got the barrel of the gun right at you and you have to actually live it. And that's why I, I'm trying to tell my story because until you've sort of been there and, and faced whatever your greatest fear is, it's really difficult to be completely candid with yourself in any other regard of your, your emotions and your feelings. So you mentioned fear during that time of depression, what is truly going through your head? Is there something that scares you more than anything else that time, whether it be dying again, never walking again, not being the man you used to be? I mean, I want to know what is that scariest thing at that time? It, it's, it is all those things that you, you mentioned. I, I went from being in this, 10th Mountain is a very elite unit. They were, if you're familiar with Black Hawk Down or Operation Anaconda or any of those things, it was a very illustrious unit. So we're very proud of what we do, but it, you also have to be in tremendous physical and mental condition to do those things. So 
going from this high echelon and this high physical point of being able to do like these crazy, you know, almost superhuman things to being paralyzed. It is from, you know, a hundred to zero to negative 10, almost at that point. The, the big thing obviously was when I was, I was angry. And then when you push that inward, that's when it becomes depression. And that's what it was. Uh, fear is a great motivator. And I'm not saying that it's, it's positive. I'm not saying it's something that we should allowed to rule our lives. But for me, the fear of not being able to to walk again or to use my hands again or anything was was a tremendous motivator. And that was, I went through a, a big, you know, almost like a no man's land intellectually trying to figure out what's my next step? What do I do? Because it would have been easy to sort of mask it by just, again, you know, flipping on whatever's on the DVR or on Netflix and just kind of letting my my mind not process, but I've realized from, you know, my life that if you do that, then you're just prolonging the inevitable. And by doing that, I'm not doing myself any favors. So I had that urgency to get to the point to figure out, okay, what do I do from here? What, whether it be good or bad, I need something. I need to know what I'm doing next. You mentioned that urgency. And I feel like other people and stories I've heard who've dealt with whether it being diagnosed with cancer, you have people who feel the self-pity and they go on continually like that. And then you have certain people who say, you know what, for 24 hours, I'm gonna give myself time to grieve. And after that, I am attacking this. What was your timeline like? And how did you finally come to that new attitude to really get after this and use this adversity as motivation? You're, you're absolutely right. The, there is nothing that gives you a greater sense of urgency than knowing that, okay, you and I both know that we're going to pass away at some point, right, Sean? So yep. we, we, we know there's an expiration date, but we don't know what it is. That's one thing. And if you have this grandiose ideal that I'm going to be laying in a bed and I'm going to have all my family around me and I'm going to be 90 years old and everything's going to be perfect and I'll be able to look back and say, oh, I wish I would have spent more time in Tuscany. That's fine. But the reality is we don't know. We can die while we're having this conversation. But it's another level whenever you're 40 years old and you are not able to do anything anymore and you realize you may have another 40 years of your life but you can't move that's almost mm. I, I wouldn't say that that's a fate worse than death but i would say that that's a very tremendous um there's a lot of gravity that you have to digest with that um and i gave myself well i wouldn't say i, I allowed myself i would just say that it just sort of happened naturally um as i came to the realization that this that this was not going to change and i begrudgingly accepted it then I sat back and I was like, okay, well, what do I do? So I, I don't have the TV on. I don't let somebody come in and turn the TV on for me. I just sit there. I lay there and, and try to revisit all the, the past lessons I've had in my life and all the other forms of adversity that I've ever encountered and try to find the common thread. And the common thread is to attack it with ferocity, to use violence of action mentally to go through these things. I say in my TED talk, you know, the, the best way out is always through by Robert Frost. I would just try to use those small mantras to keep me in a positive mindset, but also to tell myself, listen, I can either sit on my ass and, and play a victim for the rest of my life, or I can try to do whatever I can do, which may not be much, but whatever that is, I'm going to do it. And that's what allowed me to begin to make these mental strides, at least mentally forward. And that's what you have to have. If you don't have the foundation of something of that nature, there's no way to really evolve beyond it. That's beautifully said. And I definitely want to jump into what happened prior to this that led you to be able to attack it like this. But for my listeners who haven't seen the TED Talk, are you still paralyzed today? Uh, no, sir. I'm actually able to, uh, if you look at the TED Talk, I my embolition sometimes is a little bit shaky, but I still have nerve damage in my hands and my feet. Uh, th that will probably not go away. But again, compared to um, being dead and completely paralyzed, I will take it, you know, in a heartbeat. So, um, yeah, that's that's what it was. I I can I can move around. I, I'm still able to do some of the things I enjoy. Um, you and I mentioned before. Um, I've done martial arts since I was 11, and martial arts gives you an incredible amount of resilience. It gives you self control. It gives you humility. It gives you, you know, conviction of ultimate victory. All these things. Um, and when you study martial arts, that's sort of already sort of inbred within it. And then even at that age, I started reading things about, you know, 
Marcus Aurelius and, and Stoicism. I started reading about Taoism. I started reading about Budo. I started reading about Zen. And the, the thing of all these is that they were all philosophies that were bred out of the warrior mindset, the warrior mentality, the warrior class. So they didn't have the luxury of being you know, phil- too in- incredibly philosophical when they have a sword coming at their throat or they don't try to pontificate about what is going on whenever you have a gun in your face. You have to face that reality. You have to face it um, with an honesty about yourself, and that's what makes you get stronger. Um, in my talk, I say you're only as strong as the adversity that you overcome, and that is truly the reality, whether it be the adversity of 300 pounds on the barbell or whether it be the adversity of a person who's trying to push you into buying something that you don't want to do. There's all kinds of different you know, manifestations of it. The, and I, again, the martial arts helped me a tremendous amount of, of breeding that kind of mentality and that um, you know, intellectual constitution requisite to get beyond these things. Marcus, I'm, I'm so humbled and motivated by you as a person. And, and you mentioned the martial arts when you were 11 and how much you were reading at the time. I mean, I'm so curious what you were like even more as a kid and as you grow up. Clearly, you're, you're very well read here as well. I mean, you seem like you have a great grasp on so many things. I, I need to hear more about you as a child. Of course, of course. Um, I was born in the Midwest, born in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, raised in a small town. And even then, at a young age, I realized quickly, it's like, well, okay, when you get to be about 15 or 16 and everybody's going out and you know doing silly things or drinking or doing all these other things, I, I saw, I don't know how, maybe it just made sense to me, but I was like, well, I see all these people doing these stupid things and now they're these stupid consequences. What else can I do? So again, I, I really turned into the martial arts even more. I have embraced it that much more. Um, again, this is pre-internet. So reading a book, you'd have to read the analog book in your hand and you would have to go through and really digest it. Uh, I actually started playing guitar around 16. My father was a phenomenal a musician, taught me, you know, chords, taught me how to play by ear. And that was fantastic as well because it's it's interesting because I look back on that. And if you look at the samurai, for example, they were one of the most multifaceted, you know, individuals out there. The same thing with the Greeks. These are people that could read poetry, they could, you know, dissect um, a, a conversation, they could play an instrument, and yet they could still use the martial warfare as, you know, incredibly as anybody else on the face of the earth. So those things helped me a tremendous amount. And then um, once I got through high school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after college, after high school. Um, went to college in a, in, at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. I was going to go into uh, criminal justice, so I was studying a lot of that stuff. But I, I realized that I was kind of doing what I thought other people wanted me to do. I realized that I was doing things to make this person proud or to maybe impress this person or maybe to impress other people, but I wasn't doing it for me. Um, I got to the point where I was actually being considered for an FBI um, internship, which is sort of a foot in the door. And I realized that just was not what I wanted to do. And um, I'd, I'd injured my shoulder when I was training for the martial arts. And I, I actually met a chiropractor when I was in the gym. He saw me trying to do lateral raises. And I guess it was kind of a grotesque body motion for him to <laughs> observe. And he's just like, he walks up, he's like, how long has that been hurting you? And I'm like, well, you know, it, you know, it doesn't really hurt. And he's like, well, you're trying to lift your shoulder and your traps are firing like crazy. And I was like, well, you know, and he gives me his card and he said, well, here, you know, come in and see me. And I look at it and I was like, oh, you're a chiropractor. I was like, isn't this just a bunch of smoke and mirrors? <laughs> and he, and he says, well, tell you what, come in and see me. And if I don't help you, then you don't have to pay me. And I was like, I'll see you Monday, doc. So I get, <laughs> I get in there and, uh, he, you know, he he was able to analyze my spine, my shoulder. I had uh, what they considered to be an AI, an anterior inferior shoulder. So my humerus had kind of pulled out of the socket a little bit from all the thousands and thousands of punches I've been throwing. And he was able to adjust it, and it sounded like a gun going off. But I immediately had, you know, probably seventy percent, seventy-five percent range of motion immediately. And I was like, okay, listen, how did you do that? And how did you know where to look? And he says, uh, he's like, what are you doing for lunch? So we. We got done and we started talking, and there was a tremendous, you know, overlap between the chiropractic philosophy and the holistic philosophy of of that and, and martial arts and all that. 
And as we were talking, he's like, man, you would make a phenomenal chiropractor. He's like, what are you going to school for? And uh, I was like, well, I'm going to school for this. And he said, well, have you ever thought about doing this? I said, well, I, that sounds okay. I was like, so what is this called, a chiropractor? So do you just do like a weekend seminar? Is that how it works? <laughs> and he's like, no, it's a little bit more intensive than that. And so, you know, it's an actual doctorate program and you actually have to do all this. And for me, it was a big jump because I went from taking all of these almost humanitarian kind of, you know, classes to, okay, now you got to take organic chemistry. Now you got to take physiology. Now you got to take anatomy and physiology. And it was just a very 180 degree turn for me. But in a lot of ways it was good because I've, I've noticed in, in the human condition, we always need something to push us. We always need something to strive to. Our, our reach should always exceed our grasp in some capacity. And if we are not challenged, we will almost go into the state of, um, I would just say intellectual cowardice where we are almost bored and we will find these other things to distract us. So if we don't find something to put our, our best efforts towards to better ourselves, then not only do we squander the gift that we've been given, but we also end up doing what everybody else is doing where we're not really living our lives and we're just kind of going through the motions and we're waiting for Friday to get here and we're hoping that we get time off from work because we don't like what we're doing because there's no purpose and um, that's not what life is for. That's not what we're meant to do. What was the story you were telling yourself as a kid when you were practicing the martial arts? Did you have a great imagination at the time? Did you picture yourself as a samurai warrior or anything like that? <laughs> I, I I think I did. I think there was. I think I think if you embrace the the martial arts like that, it's a, almost a a kindred spirit and it's a, a universal mentality. The 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 thing that also happened was it everything that the instructors would say it, it just made sense to me it just resonated it, it, it there was no question in my mind they would give us um almost like i wouldn't say zen codings but they would give us little you know things about you know these ideas of you know you're only as strong as your weakest link or how you know the all these little things that sound almost like a something out of a fortune cookie but when they would say it i was like i would stop for a second like oh that makes a lot of sense so Maybe that kind of helped me use that mentality and that mindset to, uh, th they say that the reason why they teach us science, if you're wanting to be a doctor, is because science is basically the art of logic. You understand this is the step. If A plus B, then this equals C. If I find out what C is, now I can go back and find out what B and what A was. It's, it's logistics. So that's kind of what I was doing. I was learning to think logically from an emotional and an intellectual standpoint back then. I asked that question just because I'm thinking you fast forward 29 years and you go through one of the most difficult things a human can go through. So I'm just so curious about what you were doing, what the story, the narrative was you were telling yourself as a kid to help instill this in your mind. So when that did come, when you were 40, you were actually able to handle that and overcome it because so many people would not be able to do that. I Yeah, I think it was just that foundation that I had. It was that initial impression at that age. I was very impressionable. Um, my father and my my great uncle actually were also phenomenal role models. They were, my father is is the person that you can, he's a um, he's an engineer for the petroleum company. So he was constantly on a daily basis. If he gets called at one o'clock in the morning and you have, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of product that's that's leaking out every hour, you need to get out there and figure out how to fix it. And you're not going to be able to call somebody and say, hey, can you help me? You need to be self-sufficient and intelligent enough to figure it out on the fly. Um, my great uncle was—he uh, was in special forces. He was in Vietnam, and both of those men, you know, helped me between my great uncle taking me out and showing me how to hunt, explaining to me different things, which my father took me to hunt as well. But my uncle was the one that really helped me understand um, the the importance of of the self-sufficiency, and he always kind of told me that. There, there are really, there's nothing positive, there is nothing negative, there are simply consequences. So if you're not prepared for whatever may befall you, then it's easy to be victimized by that. And I think that all those things really stuck with me, the idea of being self-sufficient, of being resilient mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all those things. And then that's that kind of naturally carried over because I, I, of course I carried it into the, you know, the civilian sector before I got in the military. And then kind of reinventing myself in the military helped me re-embrace those things. And I, I look back now and realize that, again, I was searching for something that was going to 
you know, challenge me, searching for something that was going to force me to re-embrace that warrior. And that's, that's what happened. And that's why we're talking today, Sean. Yeah. I mean, you're 38 and you decide to join the military. Yes. Why do you finally take that jump? What truly inspired that? Um, well, we were discussing before I, from there, I went to chiropractic school in Atlanta at Life University, and I was actually married at the time. I, I got married at the time, and we moved to Atlanta. And you know, I'm going to school, and I'm I'm working. I'm, I was also bartending as well, so I'm I'm working my my tail off doing that. I'm taking 20 plus hours of doctorate level courses, and I'm married. So doing those things was really uh, there was I was burning the candle at both ends, and then we. Uh, we got divorced. My wife and I got divorced and that was pretty devastating to me. And then not long after that, the great uncle that I had mentioned had passed away. So I'm in school, I'm divorced and I'm sort of in this, this place where I'm, I can't focus. Um, I I'm almost burnt out because I'm, I feel like I may be doing something again, like I said before, maybe for other people, maybe I'm trying to impress other people. Maybe I'm chasing money. And, um, I realized that my motivation may not have been entirely my own. So just sort of out of uh, curiosity, I went down to the the recruiters and I, I talked to him and he asked me how old I was right off the bat. And I told him and he said, well, you know, the, the age limit is 35. And I said, okay, well, I'll see you later. And he said, wait, 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 wait. He said, come back. He said, talk to me for a second. And I just talk, told him, I was like, listen, you know, don't, don't toy with my emotions. You know, what, why do you want to talk to me if this isn't going to work? And he says, well, what do you want to do? And he says, it looks like you're in shape and it looks like you're, you know, so he gave me a, a PT test, a, a mock PT test right there. And I maxed it out. And then he gave me an ASVAB and I, I scored off the charts. He said, okay, listen, you're this old, you're, you're in great shape. You're intelligent. He said, you had this natural like leadership about you. Why, why are you joining now? He said, asked me the exact same question. I told him and he said, well, listen, I can sign a waiver for you to get in. He says, but you know, with your test scores and with your PT scores, you can do literally anything that you want in the army. Marcus, you can choose whatever job you want. He said, and he's smiling. He says, what do you want to do? And I was like, infantry. And he's like, what? You don't, wait a minute. Just like, you don't understand. I just told you, you can do whatever you want to do. And I said, listen, you know, if we're going to do this, this is what I want to do. And um, I'm going to live life on my own terms. And he kind of shook his head and kind of smiled. He said, okay. He said, you know, it's your life. You can do what you want to do with it. And so that's what I did. And again, knowing that you have a deadline that you're going to ship out to basic training, that's whenever you have, again, that urgency, you have a definitive deadline. No matter what else goes on, no matter what the weather is, no matter what you feel like, you're going to have to be there at this time. And that's the kind of urgency and the kind of deadline that we have to have in our lives. And that's what allowed me to work towards those things. And that's what allowed me to kind of re you know kind of re-steal myself mentally and, and physically to get in that condition today's podcast is brought to you by audible get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iphone android kindle or mp3 player i'm a huge fan of audible and definitely recommend checking it out if you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and one of the cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Can we talk more about the gift of adversity? Of course, of course. The, um, I look at, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, you're, you're a well-read person. The, uh, you've read the, the War of Art, I imagine, mm -hmm. by Pressville. He, he refers to resistance consistently and he capitalizes it with an R. I, I use the same vein for adversity, but with a capital A, but I look at it as a much more almost diabolical and unforgiving form of resistance. Um, in my TED talk, you know, I say that adversity is, it offers you no other choice. And when there's no other choice, the choice is simple. That's what I, I had to embrace in those things. And we, we, we get little tastes of it every day, whether it be, again, if you're working out or whether it be a deadline for an article or for a book or for a podcast. But 
those things are what we are necessary for us to get better. Um, we were talking about chiropractic before. We talk about the uh, innate intelligence. And we talk about our natural immune system. And if I'm living in a bubble all the time, and then all of a sudden you let me out of that bubble and I get uh, a cold, it may kill me because my immune system is horrible. But if I'm around something, if I'm around the environment, if I'm around other people, eventually my body will have to adapt. Eventually my immune system will have to get stronger to be able to deal with those things. And that's what's necessary. Adversity is no different. Adversity is the exact same thing in life. But what, what I see happening so much right now, especially when, I, when I'm coaching clients or when I'm coaching um, other people, that we so, so often want to avoid it because it's uncomfortable. We want to avoid those difficult conversations with ourselves or with somebody else. We want to avoid giving up the, the taste of this food that's pleasant to us. We want to give up having to go do that Tabata kettlebell you know, burpees or whatever we're doing because it sucks. I mean, it does not feel good, and it's something that we want to avoid. But by embracing that adversity and, and understanding that adversity is the gift that is requisite for us to get to those other levels, it is what is necessary for us to become the better person. It is the catalyst. And without that catalyst, you will just sort of live this existence that is not anywhere near where you should be as a human being. And I, again, at 40 years old, it, I, it hit me right between the eyes. And I realized that I had all this information, I had all this knowledge and this wisdom, but I wasn't putting it into action. And wisdom without action is equivalent to ignorance. It's no better than ignorance if you don't put it into action. And so that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm thinking about the 99% of the listeners who are gonna be listening to this and the narrative you're telling here and trying to think about it from their perspective where they will never face the adversity you have faced. And, and you've codified these thoughts and ideas in your head. What do you say to someone who is almost over-dramatizing their daily struggles where it's nothing in comparison to what you went through? Maybe it's they're having a tough time at work. They don't enjoy their job. How do they change that narrative in their head? It's it's very common, and I I you know I I would be dishonest if I told you that I haven't done that before. I've done it at other times in my life. The thing with adversity is, first of all, it's not a competition at all. Um, in my TED talk, I discuss. In my TED talk, I only had a small amount of time, so I have to give you a little bit about my my, my background. Then I have to kind of go through and make my other points. But that was the point that I tried to make in that talk was showing that this is what I've been through, and it it was you know, crazy for me. But then when you look at other people, you look at people in a third world country who do not have clean water. You look at people even in this country who are homeless. You look at the, the 50,000 veterans who are homeless. There is so much more that you can find even upon your doorstep that should inspire and motivate you to not fall into that, that lull of complacency. So I would tell those people to, first of all, one, realize how good you have it. And two, realize that you are a lot stronger than you give yourself credit for. And almost as a cautionary tale, if you don't try to increase your resistance to adversity right now, when something legitimately adverse hits you, when you actually face a true adversity, you may not be equipped to actually handle it. So it's in your best interest now to start looking at those things. And it can be something as simple as, you know, working a little bit harder at something. No matter how hard we're working right now, Sean, you and I both know that there is an extra click up that we can do. And that's what people can be doing. People can do something as simple as if you're watching TV and there's somebody on there that you don't like, give yourself an extra five minutes to listen to what they have to say, because that's building mental resistance. Whenever it comes to something physical, if you're something as simple as parking your car a hundred meters further than where you would normally, now you have to walk. Guess what? If it's cold outside and you don't have your jacket on, guess what? Now you're going to have to face that little bit of adversity. You just take these small micro adversities, these small baby steps towards getting stronger, towards getting better. And you'll find that the more resilient you are, you're going to find the more confident you are. I look at everything on an adversity scale is the way I look at it now. So for me, my adversity scale is, well, is it going to kill me? Probably not. Is it going to paralyze me? I doubt it. So now I have this resi resilience from knowing that I've fallen down so many times that I can pick myself up. That's why a kid learns how to, to walk, not to walk, but to learn to pick themselves up when they fall down. And if you pick that child up every time they fall down, you're doing them a huge disservice.
all of what you just said just resonates so well. I mean, I'm even thinking about if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're in the top 1% in the world in, in terms of having access to the device you're listening to this on, clean water, where you almost don't have excuses. And I also just love what you talked about with the little resistance, resilience things you do on a daily basis. I find myself doing the exact same things, whether it's when I'm at the airport taking the stairs instead of the escalator. These little things to make life difficult and uncomfortable at times, I feel like has prepped me for more difficult scenarios I've been in. So it's very cool hearing you talk about that. But what are some of the greatest challenges you now face on a daily basis? I mean, obviously you have a lot going on. You're coaching your clients. You have your new book coming out. What are you dealing with? Um, what I'm dealing with now is, um, the, the, the beauty of it is right now I'm dealing with you know, people like yourself, people that are actually wanting to hear my story, people that I, I respect their work and I, I feel that we are both of a, of a worthy mentality. So I'm trying to do the best that I can right now to sort of keep up with, with all those things, people trying to connect with me, <clears throat> and then trying to make sure that I still maintain my focus because it's very easy for me to you know, have a conversation with you now and then have a conversation with somebody else later on this afternoon, and now I don't do my workout or now I don't fast or now I don't do the rest of the work that is necessary to, to create the best product that I can. So it's about maintaining those priorities, honestly. It would be so easy for me to fall back onto that pre-injury mentality because I've gotten past it and it's like, man, I sure am glad I got past that. Woo, that's a you know a load off my mind. That doesn't really help me if I fall back into it. There in Zen, they always talk about being enlightened. And in a lot of ways, people will read it and they will say, Oh, well, if you're enlightened, then you don't have to do it anymore. But nothing could be further from the truth. Once you become enlightened and you've seen the truth. To act any other way is disingenuous, and it's a, like I say, it's almost an act of cowardice. So it's about trying to continue to embrace my daily adversity and to to push myself because I understand now that the thing that I went through is is unique, and it gives me a very I'm uniquely qualified to talk about these things. So I want to try to get that out to the people who are willing to listen to it, to the people who are open to it. For some people to listen to my story and it'll make them feel good for about 10 minutes, they'll go, man, that's amazing. Hey, what's on Facebook? Um, that's not my intent. My intent is to try to make it resonate with people, to try to give them quality wisdom, and to have them to have them actually be able to actualize these steps and put them into play. Because you never know, you never know how far-reaching something that you and I say right now could be for literally millions of people around the world. And that's the way I look at it now. It's a huge responsibility. And whether we realize it or not, somebody's looking to us in that responsibility. So I really applaud what you're doing as well. You have a phenomenal podcast here. The, the people that you have on here are top caliber, and I'm not saying that because of myself. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and I'm I'm so glad that you're working so hard at it, Sean. No, I appreciate that, and, and thank you for getting that story out because you mentioned you never know how one conversation can change someone's lives. and. We've been very fortunate with this podcast where I have had multiple people reach out and talk about different turning points in their lives and how a conversation they heard helped change that trajectory for them. So I, I know without a doubt, once people hear your story, the same will ring true. So I, I usually ask my listeners, who are some of today's thought leaders you're learning from? And I know you follow and learn from a lot of them, but I, I have to preface this, your name, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. <laughs> Obviously, you've got to pay homage to, to the philosophical Stoics. Who, who are you following from the past and then also in today? The, that name is, is my name, but I was afraid to even you know, really say it because that's, that's a huge name to have. And there's a lot of um, you know, pressure on you if you say that. But once I got injured, I realize I'm I'm embracing who I am and what I am. Um, honestly, if you want to learn something new, you need to read a book that's not. You need to read something that's old. So again, Marcus Aurelius is phenomenal. He was a rock star of the Stoics. The beauty of him is he was literally living it. Uh, if you read Meditations, he had no intent of that being published. He was basically doing it like as a self journal to himself to sort of reinforce the own his own Stoic philosophies to himself as a reminder to say, listen. You're going to wake up tomorrow, and there's going to be people in your army that are not going to agree with what you want to do. He was doing it while he was on campaign. So he's doing it while he's in the field So at, at war. So if you're doing those things, it really keeps you focused and keeps you guided, and he understood that. And that's one of the beauties I love about him. And I, I like thinking of the way the things I'm doing now is like a modern version of stoicism, 
and that's kind of the, the feel that I have. Uh, but I, I read as much as I possibly can. Um, I don't know if you know, I'm, a, I'm an instructor under Guru Dan Asanto. That's Bruce Lee's protege. So he is 81 years old this year. And that man still travels all over the world and does seminars in Italy and Greece and all over the country. And he says that the minute you stop learning is the minute you stop growing. So he is constantly trying to empty his cup and refill it with as much knowledge as he can. The people that I'm reading now, obviously, I'm reading all the modern day people. Um, you know, Tony Robbins. I, I love Tim Ferriss. I love listening to Gary Vee because of his uh, his intensity. But the other people that I'll go through and read is again Pressfield is is phenomenal. I'll go back and read The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Uh, there's a phenomenal book out there that I just rediscovered. It's called Winning Through intimidation and it's it's a great book because it actually takes you through and it makes you look it was actually written um it was written because of the gentleman that was going through it was actually in sales he was in um real estate over there in california but what he found was that it was almost like a like this machiavellian kind of mentality where you know you have to be careful and Basically, the, the story that he, he told was the idea that if you are not aware of what somebody else may do, even if it's something that I would never do or you and I would never think of something that diabolical, but if I'm not aware of it, then it's easy for me to be victimized by a person who may think in such a way. So whether it be a criminal or a person who is opportunistic or a person who's trying to you know attack you on the street or whatever, if you don't have that, then you're not able to actually create that kind of um, contingency plan so that you can actually survive it. This is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on, just knowing how like-minded we are. And in today's society, it's unbelievable what's at our fingertips. I was just talking about this the other day on an upcoming episode with Ron Wilson, who's the uh, CEO of Hiley, which is a clothing brand. And he's talking about, I mean, if you want to learn anything, there are so many books that you can just pick up, read things on YouTube, your TED Talk. It's unbelievable the world we're living in today. So it's almost like there are no excuses. So I, I just love hearing about some of the people that you're continuing to learn from. What about, what are you most passionate about in your life right now? Well, right now is is obviously my, my teachings and continuing to do what I'm doing. Um, I'm just passionate to make people, I want people to understand. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're male, female. I don't care what you're, you're identification is. I don't care what your race is. I just want you to realize that you're incredibly strong. You are so much stronger than what you give yourself credit for. And if you don't think of yourself as being powerful, then you will not exude that sort of mentality and you will not exude that in your posture. When I've taught people self-defense before, when I've taught the military, when I've taught police, it's about body language. It's about seeing somebody. So a person who is trying to find an easy target, for example, they look for a person who looks like prey. They look for a person who walks with this certain gait, a person who looks down, a person who is afraid to be aware of their environment. And that is to them, those are all the, the telltale signs of prey. And they will try to sort of bump into you or kind of victimize you in that capacity. Having said that, if you start believing that you are strong, if you start realizing that you are strong, eventually your posture will erect a little bit more. Eventually, you will breathe a little deeper. Eventually, you will look around, and not in fear, but just out of being you know, aware of your environment. And by having those things, you will find so much more, not only about yourself, but around the people around you. And that's what is what I'm trying to do now is to teach people, one, that you've got it really, really good in this country, and that two, you are much stronger than you believe you are, so start acting like it. Oh, I love that. I mean, that is one great actionable takeaway for the listeners today. That body language, that posture, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about the, the doorway technique and every single time you enter through a doorway, stand a little more erect, get those shoulders back, have that head a little bit higher and just Absolutely. the confidence you have after that. I, I feel like there are profound impacts on your lives if you just do one of those simple things. So, I mean, you've had a lot of things change in the past few years. Any ideas you've had in the past year that's changed based on some of the research you've learned from someone? There, there's always some. There's always something new that I'm always learning, and I'm trying to put it into play. Um, in Jeet Kune Do, it's Bruce Lee's martial art. He, he had a philosophy, and he it was an art, but it was a philosophy as well. And he always said, "I absorb what is useful, I discard what is useless, and then I add what is specifically my own." Because the experiences that you have, Sean, and the experiences that I have may be different but we may be able to find a universal thing that we can both embrace. 
so the things that I'm finding now, uh, again, I've, I've known this for a long time, but in the military, for example, it was about um, the duration. So if you're, if you're running, you run for an hour, or if you're doing um, some sort of exercise, you do it for a long time. But I've re-embraced the ideas of quality over quantity when it comes to exercise, for example. So the Tabata protocol, where you're attacking something for 20 seconds and then taking 10 seconds off. So if you're hitting a bag doing that as hard as you can, by the fourth round, you're about to puke, but you have four more rounds to go. That does two things. One, that builds that mental resistance. Two, that builds that physical fortitude that is requisite to allow you to reinforce the mental, the mentality that is there. So um, again, if I can do weight properly, I don't have to do it for an hour. I can do it for 10, 20 minutes and then move on to the next movement because it's about quality. The same thing with, I so I, now I'm taking that whenever I write. When I write, I tell myself, listen, I'm going for an hour. I've got 50 minutes. And then in those 10 minutes in between there, I'm going to give myself that time off. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to do something to get myself out of this state, go back to the state, refocus, and then reattack this. And knowing that I only have a small duration in which to do so, it makes me intellectually sprint towards my goal. And that's what I've, I, at least for me, I found a tremendous amount of, of positive results from that. Intellectually sprint towards my goal. I absolutely love that. I think I'm going to write that one down. I mean, that's that's <laughs> unbelievable. Do. Yeah, that's that's one you put on the desk and look at every single day. <laughs> so, if you could have my listeners implement one thing in their lives, what would it be? There, there are so many, but I'll I'll end with, or I'll talk about the my end ending for my my TED talk. And I, I just said, adversity is a gift. Embrace it. If you see adversity as something that you don't want to do, or if you see adversity as something that is something that you're trying to avoid, you you will not go there. You will not turn into it. What I'm trying to tell you is to to understand that it is necessary. Anything that you want in your life that's worth having has a price. And the price for life is adversity. So pay the price, guys. That's great. That is so great. I mean, just hearing you say that again, it's unbelievable. So you mentioned the writing. You want to talk about your new book? What else you have going on? Oh yes, sir. Thank you so much. I have um, my book is going to be called my book is called The Gift of Adversity. It'll be out in August, and it'll be sort of what we've discussed here. I've had so many people that have seen my TED talk, and I've had so many fantastic, you know, responses to it. And I'm so happy that I can make that quality and that positive impact on people. But as I said before, I didn't have a whole lot of time to talk in the in that actual talk. So people were saying, "Okay, so you were paralyzed, and you were doing this, and how did you get there?" So what I do in the talk is I, I give a little bit about me. The book is like our interview where I talk more about what happened. The first half of my TED Talk, all of those words about adversity, that's directly from my book. Those are just memorized passages. So if you like that first half of my talk, then you're going to love the book. The book goes through and talks about other lessons that I've learned. It talks about what I did is in my bed, I laid there, I could not move, but I would mentally make a checklist. It's like, listen, if I'm ever able to walk again and I'm able to write this stuff down, these are the 10 to 12 things I'm going to write down, and these are all of these experiences that I've had to reinforce it. So they are real-life examples of how to put these things together about a functional philosophy that you can put into your life right now that will make you a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better employer, a better employee, and that's the idea. I cannot wait until August to get my hands on this book. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I mean, this conversation, I, I just loved so much, so I know I'm going to enjoy that one. Uh, how else can my listeners stay connected with you? Anywhere social they can connect? Of course. I'm uh, I'm on LinkedIn, social, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Uh, my website, MarcusAureliusAnderson.com. Uh, I've got my tech team working on different things on different platforms because uh, when it comes to social, I am not very good at that stuff at all. But we're working on you know getting stuff on Instagram and, and Facebook and other things like that. But yeah, that's that's the idea is to do those things and to try to create that positive impact on as many people as I possibly can. Great. We'll get all that linked up in the show notes. Marcus Aurelius Anderson, I can't thank you enough for your service, your authenticity, and coming on today. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm so fortunate and thankful to have you here today. Well, I'm so so grateful and humbled to be on this program. And thank you so much for the invitation, Sean. I've, I've absolutely loved our time. And I, I think that we are going to make a, a lot of positive impact on a lot of your listeners. And uh, again, I, I really appreciate our time. Great. Thank you. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, 
What got you there? What got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.